Hello, fellow songwriters, and welcome to the second episode of the How Songs Are Made podcast, where we talk to notable artists about their songwriting process. I'm your host, Trey Xavier, and today we're going to be talking to guitarist Brody Utley of the band Rivers of Nile about how they wrote their new album, The Work. The Work is Rivers of Nile's fourth studio album. It was released September 24th of this year, and it was tracked at Atrium Audio with Carson Slovak and Grant McFarland, as well as in Brody's home studio. It hit number 11 on the Billboard Heat Seekers chart, and once again features Zach Strauss performing saxophone on it. So please welcome my guest, Brody Utley. You know, the process wasn't too much different from how it normally is, other than the fact that I would say we were able to get together a lot less, mostly, like almost zero getting together this time. Usually what happens is Adam, our bass player, he and I will usually get together here and kind of like work stuff out. I'll, I'll usually write a lot here ahead of time and he'll come over and we'll kind of go through songs that I'm working on. And he's really good at organizing songs. A lot of times if I spend too much time on something and I'm just hearing it one way, I'll you know, he's my kind of quality control guy. So usually we would get together here and work on stuff. But obviously, you know, with COVID and everything in 2020, which was when most of this record was written, and him actually moving out of to a different city, a different state, um, we weren't able to kind of do things the way we normally would. So it was really just a lot of me sitting here and, uh, you know, sending the guys Google Drive links and videos of my uh, computer screen, really. <laughs> because we record a lot of stuff here, like on, you know, Monarchy, our second record, we recorded all the guitars and the bass here, uh, on Where I'll Know My Name, same thing. This time, we just did guitars and all of the, like, auxiliary kind of piano stuff and all that kind of stuff here. And then we did bass at the studio this time, which was a little different. Uh, we, we wanted Carson to kind of produce Biggs's bass playing this time around because I had been the, you know, the producer for the last few records. And this record has a, a, like a different sound for us, I guess. So I think that we figured changing it up like that um, just for ideas sake might be good. Um, so having him you know, produced by Carson. That was like kind of a new thing this time, but it was cool because I think the bass turned out, it turned out really killer, like much different than our previous stuff, but killer nonetheless. And I think a lot of that has to do with Biggs actually like working with Carson on the bass parts instead of just me being like, yeah, sounds pretty sick. And then, you know, hitting, <laughs> hitting the button. Um, most of the work was done here, you know, at my place. I spent pretty much all of the, the time, you know, during 2020 and the first uh, or no, I guess we recorded the album in 2020. So we recorded the album in 2020. I We ended up writing a lot of the album during 2020. And then even after we recorded the record, I spent the next several months working on uh, a lot of like field recording stuff and like extra stuff that we added in kind of after we had recorded, um, just because we had a lot of time on our hands, really. Um, so it was a much longer writing process this time just because nothing was going on, you know? So I think in a lot of ways we were able to get, you know, as much time as we needed with this project without really having to worry about, you know, deadlines or whatever. So it, it kind of was a pretty relaxed record to make, I guess, just because of 
of the time that we had and, you know, oh, well, maybe today I'll, you know, go to this place and see what kind of weird sounds I can find, you know, and then, or whatever, you know, just stuff that like I wouldn't have done before um, we were able to do it this time around. So, but yeah, most of it was written here, um, you know, uh, recorded all, like I said, all the guitars and, you know, extra instruments here. Sax was recorded at the, um, at the studio, um, but everything else was, was right here. So walk me through one track on the on the album, maybe or like a, a typical one. What it generally generally how it takes shape for you, you know, d- what is the inception of the idea? How many back and forths with the rest of the band? How much input they usually? Ha- how collaborative it is? That sort of thing. Give me like a a step by step as much as you can remember. Yeah. Um, so I guess. Uh, we'll go with the song Clean, which was the first single that came out off of this record. You know, that whole song, as with like a lot of the stuff that that I write, is really based around one idea. Um, it's the, you know, the, the opening riff of that song. Um, like I would say like 80% of that song is like some variation of, of the opening riff, right? And I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of of bands that kind of use that sort of tech technique if you want to call it that like uh, approach to writing i guess i think i read like over 10 years ago in some magazine it was an interview with uh mark morton from lamb of god and he was talking about how he had heard the term riff farming i think from gojira or mashuga one of those bands and it was described as basically taking a you know riff and and just kind of like slowly morphing it over a song, but like keeping the whole song sort of like based around this like one melodic or rhythmic idea, whichever it may be. Um, so like that song, for example, a lot of that song is is just based around that that one opening riff, and then throughout the song, you know, using different tones and effects and uh, additional auxiliary in- instrumentation and stuff like that, you can kind of like disguise it so that it doesn't just sound like you're playing the same thing over and over again, but with that song, I'm pretty sure I wrote maybe the first like minute of that song. Um, and just, you know, I would probably like send, you know, I, I'm really, for how nitpicky I am with our pre-production, I'm pretty uh, lo-fi with how I break new new music to my my band members. Uh, usually it's just me literally filming my screen with my phone. <laughs> I'm like, you guys, how do you, what do you think of this? You know? And uh, it just looks like, you know, it was filmed on a, a Game Boy Color or whatever. Um, but that's usually what I do uh, is a lot of that. Like I will, I'll send it to the group chat, say, hey, what do you guys think? And John, our guitar player, and Jared, when it comes to like riff writing and stuff, um, both of those guys are like, I don't want to like throw them under the bus and call them yes men, but they're very like nice. Like whenever you send them stuff, they're like, this is awesome, right? Whereas like, uh, I'm more of the kind of like I want I want to be insulted right when I'm writing <laughs> stuff I want to know that if it sucks or if it's like you know boring or it's been done or whatever and usually Biggs is my my guy for that just because he's like you know he's a jerk right he's just like a mean <laughs> a mean guy nah but he he's like my he's like the guy who usually kind of you know will will roast something you know um, and I will kind of tweak stuff based on, you know, how much of, of that roasting is going on. But everyone is involved, you know, Jared with, with the drums, like I'll, you know, I'll program out some some real like loose basic drums on on Superior or whatever and just kind of 
get a get a, a demo going and then once we actually record jared kind of reimagines all of the drums and does his his own thing you know a lot of a lot of videos in the group chat a lot of google drive links of incomplete ideas uh a lot of a lot of times what i'll do is especially when i'm arranging songs um i'll have like three or four versions uh of you know a minute long section of a song with different arrangements and i will forward that to the dudes and see what they think because uh, i don't i don't write any of the lyrics or anything like that and i do try to write with that in mind i do try to write with vocals in mind like always um which so you know that's why biggs who our, our bassist you know he writes most of the lyrics so that's why he's kind of the guy that i sort of default to for uh you know organizational um uh pra practices i don't know where well, i'm just using big words here keep it all organized and yeah he's the, he's the guy who you know because i'm you know as a guitar player and as like a guy who loves the studio uh just the process right i do have a tendency to get out of control and just let stuff go for like way too long right you know like put too much stuff on this uh let this section go too long add unnecessary thing here why is that there you know like i have a tendency to to do stuff like that uh, a lot. So he's he's a guy who, um, you know, basically tells me to sell down and, you know, make suggestions. But yeah, a lot of back and forth in the group chat, really. We haven't written in a room together since probably like 2011, you huh. know? I definitely don't miss that. I think it would be different now that we're like on in-ears. I think we could probably write in a room together and, and actually be productive and have it makes sense because we'd be able to hear each other but up until very recently we didn't have you know in-ears so trying to write together in a room with four other guys you know it's, it's just a nightmare because everyone's oh yeah it's just tons of noise and you know just takes months to get anything done or for us it did at least so you know once i got into once i got into recording uh we kind of just stopped doing that and i i would oftentimes bring you know, just complete songs to, to practice or whatever. So, um, and just kind of snowball from there, you know, John, our other guitar player and I will write track, we'll write songs together, you know, um, sometimes, uh, this time on this album, we didn't get to do that just because of, he lives in on long islands. I'm in Pennsylvania and COVID and everything. So we didn't actually get to, to do a song together on this album, but sometimes he'll come down. We'll spend like a day working on some stuff and you know knock a song out in a day or two but yeah <clears throat> i mean i i, I think i, I kind of got away from the original question uh but with with the song clean um that that whole song is really based around that that one opening riff and then the the middle section of the song is this sort of big open solo section that has you know a synthesizer solo and like a big guitar solo and then it kind of just goes back into how the song started it's like you know bookends it's this big weird prog thing in the middle bookended with you know riffs basically it's it's a pretty simple song but i think you know when we really we released it as the first single for the record i think that it was it was a good snapshot of i think where we were at and it still like preserved a lot you know that i think people had come to like about us on on the where owls know my name while sort of bringing this new thing to the table and you know making that whole middle section with like the the moog and everything um i don't well, it's out of picture here, but I have like some synthesizers here next to me. I got really deep into uh, analog synths during uh, pandemic, so 
Um, there's a good bit of that on the record, a lot of that on the song Clean that I'm talking about too. So I think that whole middle section was really like turned up, you know, the intensity of it was turned up once I started getting comfortable with working with uh, analog synths because it kind of just opened like a whole nother door for me creatively. But yeah, that, so that song Clean, you know, that, that whole song is mostly based around the one riff. You know, the, the middle section is kind of like the, the, the side quest, you know? So once you had that riff, um, like, like you said, that kind of first, first bit and you sent it to the band, at what point did the lyrics get added and how does that usually work? Like you said, Biggs writes most of the lyrics. Does he write the lyrics and then sort of demo them on the parts or does he just give the lyrics to Jake and let Jake kind of do it? The last two records, Biggs is like one of those writers who's just like, you know, oh, I, I got it up here, you know, and then like he does, you know, um, like on this album, I only think I saw lyrics for one or two songs before we actually got into the studio. Most of the writing lyrically on this record and on the last record was done like right there in the studio. He kind of just um, would break off from the rest of us and just be like off in a room with his laptop and headphones on. Like he just did it right there. Um, like I said, there was there was a, like one or two songs that he had lyrics for. But the thing with, with Rivers that... Um, up until this record has kind of kept like I guess kept me on track with like writing like the music for it um, is the this concept that we have each of our we have four records each one of our records is a seasonal theme the first one was spring second one summer third one when uh, fall and this last one uh, winter so like when I'm writing the music I already know this right so like when I'm writing the music I kind of keep that in mind and try to like incorporate things that might you know, summon feelings of like winter or like whatever it is. Like Big, Biggs and I talk a lot about, you know, what what the concept might be and like what kind of themes I, I should be sort of leaning into and, and whatnot. So um, even though I didn't see any of the lyrics uh, or most of the lyrics um, before we ended up recording the, the music for the album, um, I still kind of knew what was going on in a, in a, pretty decent way I would say so having those the four album thing which like now it's over so who knows what's gonna you know what what we're gonna do next or like whatever but oh you don't know about the fifth season bro oh well yeah I mean we're gonna make one up I, we just haven't come you know decided what we're gonna call it yet we're just gonna keep doing it's a combination it's Sprummer Flinter Flinter it has all four you know that's just what we'll call the record we'll just call it that <laughs> Sprummer Flinter <laughs> great yeah we'll, we'll we'll spell it out like phonetically yeah so I don't usually know what the lyrics are going to be like before we record the music for the albums that's usually something that comes in sort of towards the end because even if jake our, our vocalist um even if he writes a song he's going to just bring it into the studio you know um the vocals are always kind of like the last thing that we add um mostly because grant mcfarland where we record at atrium it's carson slovak and grant mcfarland carson deals with everything but vocals and then grant uh does exclusively vocals and he's amazing at producing uh vocalists um so like a large part of the reason that we're able to kind of like do it like that you know with like the vocals being more of a end of the process type thing is because grant is you know he's so good at what he does and you know him working with biggs and and jake and jared um you know he gets awesome results out of those guys so i think that's that's a big part of of how we're able to do what it is that we do because i i don't think if we had grant working with us 
uh, we'd be as prepared to like do these records because he's just, you know, so good at what he does. I mean, those guys have worked with, you know, August Burns Red and Era and Black Crown Initiate and, you know, so they're working with some awesome bands. So Grant's great at what he does. And, and I think what he does helps us out uh, quite a bit, you know. So you're basically hearing these songs instrumentally all the way up until you actually go to the studio to record them. I mean, the first time that I heard the vocals on this record was like when we had been at the studio for like five days, maybe. Like we were like, that's the cool thing is that they run it in a way where while we're doing this, they're doing vocals in like another part of the studio. So that's efficient. Yeah. So like for the first couple of days, we, you know, I was just working with Jared on drums and stuff, uh, Jared and Carson on drums. And then I forget what we did after after that but like I was just working with them on that and I didn't have a chance to even go over and really hear any of the vocal stuff until we'd been there for like four or five days so like that was literally the first time that I heard any of the vocals or any vocals on any of that music so yeah for two years or whatever we'd all just been listening to the songs instrumentally wow that's a little bit terrifying to me. <laughs> but I guess, you know, if you've, uh, once you've got a, a certain way of doing it, you've got trust in your team and you know that the final product is going to be a certain way, then uh, you can just do that. It gives you a certain amount of freedom, I think. And also just, you're not sort of a slave to the to the vocals. Yeah, I mean, and I think like our music is very like, layered sounding you know there's a lot going on you know it's kind of like you could just keep it's like an it's like an onion as they say you could just keep peeling it back right and like i think that maybe some of the reason that that's our you know part of our sound is because just maybe you know i'm just kind of spitballing here but like maybe that the reason that our sound has become the way that it has over the years is because like when I'm sitting here writing stuff, it's instrumentally and like maybe because there's not vocals to like occupy uh, certain spaces, I fill it in with other textures, you know, different instruments or, you know, atmospheric guitars or w whatever, you know, and that all becomes part of our greater kind of, you know, sound world or whatever. Um, maybe, you know, I, I listen to a lot of like instrumental post-rock and post-metal music that like some of those bands are some of my favorite, you know. Um, so to listen to, a, to listen to stuff instrumentally, like I actually, I, I like hearing it both ways, you know? Um, and it's always, it always is kind of like a, a fresh, it's a, it's a fresh take on an album once I hear it with vocals. Cause by the time we actually get into the studio, I'm t super sick of the songs, right? Cause I, <laughs> you know, demoed them out and then re-recorded them and, you know, and I've been listening to them for two years or whatever. And hearing them with vocals is always like a nice, like fresh point of view on the material and it kind of gives me a newfound appreciation for what we're working on yeah at this point you have uh three singers in the band you've got jake and biggs does a lot of screaming and stuff and then jared did jared sing on on the last one too much yeah he he sang he sang on a few songs on al's he's got like he's got the higher the higher voice um but yeah, him and Biggs both do uh, like singing. Um, Biggs does screaming. Jake's mostly screaming. I think there's a few parts where he might he might do some clean singing. But yeah, Jared uh, he joined the band in 2017, so kind of right at the end of the Monarchy album cycle when we were writing "Where Owls Know My Name," um, and you know we didn't 
we didn't know him, you know, like we, we had just met him and like, we were still kind of like getting to know each other and getting to know what each other's strengths were and, and stuff like that. So when he came into the studio on the last record, you know, we were doing vocals and he was like, Oh, I can sing. And we were like, Oh, yeah, okay, okay. bro. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like every, everyone's like, Oh dude, I can, I can sing, you know, like, I just, you know, and I don't know. So like, it was kind of like, a, okay, sure. And we tried it out and it was awesome. Like he's got an awesome voice and he can actually, he like, he, you know, when we played Al's, the whole album where Al's Know My Name, like he, you know, blasting at 270 and, and singing, like, you know, he, he actually does it and he, he's like in tune and I was like blown away, you know? What a mensch. What a find. You're like, all right, so we need somebody who can do outrageous blast beats and all this groovy stuff that we're doing. And then he's like, well, also, I have a beautiful tenor voice. So, you know, if you wanted to use that at the same time, what? Yeah, I always think it's really cool when drummers sing. So I was, you know, pretty stoked about that when when we figured out that not only did he sound good on on record, but he also sounded, you know, ex- I mean... He sounds great live. Like I'll I'll say that about him, you know, like um so but anyway, Jared, you know, impressed us so much like throughout the 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 album cycle for Owls and on the record Owls that, you know, we wanted to include him more vocally on this record. So yeah, he uh he sang a lot more on this record and I think it sounds killer. I love his I love all of his vocal parts and the fact in the back of my head I know he's playing drums at the, you know at the same time, not in the studio, but live he will be. I mean, that that makes it more exciting to me. I just, like I said before, I think it's awesome when drummers sing. Yeah, I always love that too. Um, when you're writing the tracks, are you thinking about that at all? I know you're 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 saying that you um like you don't know at all what the vocals are going to sound like until you actually get to the studio. But are you writing them, putting space in the songs for that? kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I would say that I really started doing that on Where Owls Know My Name, whereas our two records before that were more laid out kind of in a way of like a more traditional tech death band, I guess. Like it was a lot of, it was like a lot of riffs, you know, and like there was stuff that there were hooks and there was, you know, this is the chorus and, and stuff like that. But I think it wasn't until our third record that I really started considering like oh okay like budgeting space for vocals right and like realizing that okay even though this section i could pile a bunch of other stuff on top of it like or you know make the drums super insane here or whatever like maybe you know maybe just don't do that because like there's a whole other thing that we're doing after you know i record this stuff and we go to the studio so yeah it's it's i guess through writing this last record in particular and the one before it, you know, learning to, because of the way that we write these records, um, learning to lay songs out with vocals in consideration. Like, I don't know specifically what's going to be going on, but I always try to budget space for them, uh, no matter what, you know, and try to lay things out in a way where it makes sense, you know, with like verses and, you know, the bridges and choruses and whatnot, not always, adhering to that because i know you hear a lot of you know extreme bands saying like oh yeah we write with a pop song structure uh you know which i definitely do sometimes um but sometimes i don't so it's it's really like depends on the song but generally yeah i mean i I always try to consider 
consider vocals as I'm putting the thing together because it's, you know, the other half of what we're what people are going to end up hearing. So by the time you hit the studio, the songs are already completely structured out. Do you make any changes uh, based on like producer input or or anything like do, do they ever get there and they're like, oh, shit, we need like we need one more repetition of the chorus here to, to fit the vocals a bit more or something like that. Did any of that happen? Not really. I mean, we pretty much bring in these records to the studio and they're just like done. Like we just basically hand them, you know, like the general like layout of the song and everything. It's, it's mostly there. I think there may have been a few times where something like that happened where like, oh, we should do a repeat here or we should cut this off. Like I know for a fact on this last record there's a song called wait it's the third song on the record and i know for a fact the ending of that song was originally like a minute longer than it ended up being on the record and that was just like me you know wanting to really fade it out you know (laughs) and like them being like well uh like probably most people have left by now so you know (laughs) maybe just bring it back only the bartenders hearing this last minute so maybe we just uh yeah yeah, just just cut. Let's cut the shit here, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there 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 are some things I tend to, especially when we're in the studio, because when I'm sitting in front of like a recording setup and everything, I tend to like get kind of manic with like my ideas, you know, like oh we could do this and like oh that would sound crazy with like a you know like a slapback and this and this and like there have been times where like Carson's had to be like to chill me out, you know, like just like oh it's probably fine, you know. So like it's just rock and roll, bro. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that most of that kind of stuff, though, goes on in the vocal session. Like when they're working on vocals, I know there's a lot of experimentation and, you know, just try this, see if this works. Like, let's change this to, you know, like most of that kind of stuff is going on with the vocal sessions because musically, like I said, bring stuff in and it's like mostly there. You know, I just essentially hand Carson a a hard drive with all the DIs on it and then we just start tracking drums basically and then we reamp guitars at the pretty much at the very end you know but yeah I mean there are definitely times when you know me or any of us will get you know too excited about you know something and like you know oh we could add all it and you know they're like hey it's okay so that's probably just me probably just me i'm like i'm like i'm the crazy manic guy that just like you know can't have enough of you know too much of a good thing i guess but they uh yeah the it happens every now and then i guess <laughs> you're ambitious you got you have yeah, musical ambition that's i think that's cool like that's how you push you know yeah i mean really knowing the language of working within a DAW and knowing how to do all this stuff, you know, knowing how to make a sound that, and I'm not just talking about like a riff or a melody or anything, just purely a sound, like an echo or like a weird, like just sounds that like you could just like, you know, oh, like make like a, make like a buttery sound, like just stuff like that, all that like guitar player lingo, like knowing that how to like articulate that into an actual sound, knowing the steps to take to make that sound, you know, within uh, a recording program. I think that's like one of the most freeing feelings, right? Like being able to hear something in your head and just, just like know exactly what to do uh, to make it happen. And, And I tend to get really, like I said, like manic, like when I'm like, when I'm writing and like when we're in the studio because you know uh i mean i love touring of course but uh you know 
recording and writing like that is the creative process is my favorite part of the process so i tend to get really like you know wild about it and have to be sat down in the corner every now and then (laughs) (laughs) by the time you go on tour not only have has it been two years of you writing the songs and getting sick of them but like and recording them and then rehearsing them playing together and then you go out on stage every night and play them probably exactly the same way to one degree or another, maybe a small bit of variation in improv or whatever, but um, it's very different. It's, it's not, especially in metal, it's not a creative um, outlet. It's, it's performing. It's a, sh- you're putting yeah. on the show, the studio yeah. and, and writing, that's all uh, the creative part. It's, you know some people prefer one or the other and it's it's good to be able to enjoy both of them but it's it's different parts of your brain unless you're playing jazz and it's tons of improv it's totally different yeah yeah i mean i think that yeah because i think with like jazz uh and genres that are more improv based the a lot of the, the the creative process and the performing aspect of it are kind of like tied into one. They're, they happen, you know, at the same time, right? You know what I mean? Whereas like, like you said, like with like metal, it is like very much like a the creative process is beforehand. And then the live show is kind of like a demonstration really of like how good, you know, are we at like making it sound exactly like what you came here to hear, right? You know? Um, so yeah, it is definitely different. And like, I think that, you know, a large part of it is like a large part of the reason that I I like the creative process outside of just liking, you know, create being creative is that, you know, when you're on tour, you just feel terrible a lot of the times because you're just like, you know, your your body is sore and like you have no energy, you're tired, like you're stuck in a, you know, steel tube with the same guys. Like I think a large part of like the, you know, uh, the creative process for me is, is being comfortable, feeling good, feeling healthy. And like, I hear a a lot of people talk about writing music, like when they're in like the really dark place, I guess, like super, like super depressed and whatever. And like, I've found that, uh, I have to like be in a pretty good mood and be pretty comfortable and pretty healthy. And like, if I have all that, I'm like, good to go like I can write you know just keep going keep going but like as soon as like I get tired my body starts hurting or I get sick or whatever you know which happens all that happens on tour it just like makes picking up the guitar like sometimes some days like agonizing you know what I mean so like that's why you know I mean like I said I love going on tour but like the getting to sit down here with like coffee and a polar uh you know and like just have like just basically you know insulate myself from from everything in this little cozy room here like that's that's like i love that you know so yeah. i don't know what point i'm trying to make with what i just said but well i i th- i 100% agree with all of that um you know until you're until you're in a place where like you have a nice you know everybody you're on a nightliner you've you're getting proper catering maybe you're staying in hotels Getting being comfortable enough on tour to feel creative at all is is tough. Like I hear bands like bigger bands like, oh, we wrote this whole thing at Soundcheck on our last tour. Like, what? 
first of all, you got a sound check. <laughs> Second of all, like what? But I guess they, you know, some they like you get to a certain level and you can do that. But um, being comfortable in like in a in this situation like you're talking about, like in your you know, in your a little home studio, you can feel vulnerable. You can you can try stuff with no consequences. It's not like being like surrounded by farting dudes on a bus, you know, and like or and or a sound check in front of. I guess if you can get to that point where you can feel comfortable doing that, you can write anywhere. We um, the first episode of this podcast was with Matt Hafey, and they do all of their writing as a band in rehearsal. Um, And he said it's basically because they're always all on their game all the time. They practice together so much and they're so comfortable with, uh, with improvising as a group to get these ideas out. And I was like, that sounds so, that feels so foreign to me. I'm like you, I like to sit in my nice little cozy studio and dump the ideas into my DAW. And if something sucks, nobody ever has to hear it. Yeah, dude. Plus like for me personally, like a a pretty big part of my writing process is sometimes like it has nothing to do with guitar. Like sometimes I'll come up with something like an idea for the guitar through like messing around with something else within like Cubase or whatever, like a, a whatever contact instrument or whatever. I'll come up with like a melody or or like some kind of rhythmic thing that I'll then go translate to a guitar, right? So like I think having the studio thing at my disposal is a large part of my process. Like, you know, like the studio setup is an instrument for me in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways so like having that there is important for me like i you know hearing about like what you just said about trivium or um you know like i know archspire like they all they write all together in the same room you know like i think it's awesome when bands do that they practice like four days a week yeah yeah i mean dude i mean i can't i don't know like if all my guys lived you know if we all lived around each other, I mean, maybe we would too. I I don't know. We just don't, you know, our drummers in Reno, uh, our guitarists on Long Island, yeah. me and our singer are the only ones who live in Reading anymore. And then uh, Adam lives in uh, Richmond. So we're just kind of like everywhere now. But yeah, I'm, you know, I'm like jealous of bands that can do that. You know, just yesterday I was listening to a podcast with, uh, it was Mark Tremonti and he was like talking about how most of his writing happens in the in the green room which, you know, like, I could never do that. Like, I always thought it was the coolest thing when bands would be like, oh, yeah, we just, like, write together on the road. Like, the the fantasy of that, right? Like, it just, it, it sounds awesome. I've just never been able to do it because I'll show, you know, I show up to a venue and I'm just like, I feel dead. <laughs> like, I'm just like, and they're like, here's a closet for you to sit in. Uh, you know, like, it's like, this is not, you know, versus, like, this setup that I have here, you know, like, which do you think is going to, like, make me feel more comfortable and want to like cozy up and write some riffs i don't know yeah it's just me though it's different for everybody you know yeah i guess if you're like living on tour basically like i mean you've maybe seen that uh thing like john mayer's like warm-up amp is a dumble oh yeah (laughs) you know like his backstage warm-up rig is a is a dumble and it's like Okay, well, that might be uh like if you know if I have a a big enough green room, like the green room that John Mayer has is probably bigger than my apartment, and it's probably a lot cozier, and there's catering and the whole works. And because 
he's there out on the road all the time you just he it's it's more like being at home it more resembles what you've got there he's probably got people who could set bring his whole setup and get it set up and then he's it's almost like he's at home tremani's not probably quite at that level but he's they're definitely playing much much bigger venues than you and I would. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, but yeah, it's, I I feel that shit. I'm just like, wow, like how do you, how do you have that? I don't know. Well, yeah, because like it's just like you're out there on the road. It's like yeah, let's write some music about it, man. You know, like I'd love to do that. I just can't. Like I just I come home uh, and I write in. You know, I write in between tours. That's what I do. You know, so um, yeah. But I, I always think it's awesome when bands when bands can do that. I just. I guess I just have to like, I think sleep is honestly like the thing that, that messes me up the hardest, like not having proper sleep uh, as like old man as that sounds of me to say, I've always kind of been that way. But like, I find that like when I, when I don't have proper sleep and I'm eating terribly or not eating at all, even worse, those two things are just like any like i'm just a shell of a person like i'm you know hence hence why it's nice to go on stage you know sometimes like if you're in that state of mind and you're just like well i could just hit the space bar and play the same set as last night i don't even have to think about it on nights when you're like that you know what i mean so like i guess in certain respects i'm glad that i don't have to go out and like improvise every night on stage because it would probably be impossible just because of like how little sleep you get when you're out there sometimes anyway yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely dude i am I'm a guy who needs a lot of sleep, and uh, I mean, I've only been on tour one time, but one one real time. But yeah, that's yeah. There's <laughs> sleep in the food, and and it's such a an ordeal to get each to to get each one. I mean, you're you like when you're on tour, especially if you're in a van. I mean, and there's a difference. Like we've toured, you know, in Europe we've toured in buses, and like I will say that those tours. I always feel pretty good because you get to sleep, right? But like when you're in a when you're in a van, you know, in the states, I mean, it's just like you wake up in the morning, maybe get McDonald's, you go right to the venue, you stay there all day, you know, and uh, and you might not eat until eight or nine o'clock at night, and there's nothing open except for the Sunoco gas station across the street. It's like this is not riff fuel. You're like, cool. I'll eat a bear claw, I guess, from a little bag. Oh, I've definitely eaten the bear claw for sure. <laughs> I had the blueberry, uh, the blueberry and blueberries and cream bear claw with like the burnt coffee. Yeah, that's formula to uh, platinum <laughs> album writing right there. <laughs> but at least there you've got your uh, the title, blueberry bear claw and the burnt coffee. Yeah, it's my folk side project. <laughs> Do you have any sort of systematic processes for taking a riff or an idea, an in, the, the inception idea, and developing it out a bit? Is there anything that you do, maybe not every time, but often in a more systematic way to get, like you're saying, this riff farming thing or that general idea to develop an idea into a full song? When I write something, a lot of, a lot of times I'll kind of know as I'm writing it is this is this a chorus riff? Is this a verse riff? Is this kind of a who knows what sort of riff? Like, will this go under a solo section? Like, as I'm writing stuff, I already know, usually as as soon as, like, I write just the basic outline of a riff, like, if it's going to be a chorus riff or, or one of the others, like I said. So, usually what I do is I'll get a a basic and it could it could even be I could do this in reverse like I could come up with some kind of like really 
cool melody or whatever, like more of like a, a textural thing, right? Um, rather than like an actual riff. And I'll kind of do it in reverse from that. Like I'll get a melody and then I'll write the riff around that. Or sometimes I'll have a riff, I'll drop it into my DAW, and then I will usually open up some some VSTs, um, some contact stuff. Uh, I really like the stuff from Spitfire and Heaviosity. There's, uh, what's, the, what's the other company? There's a company called G-Force. They make a really cool Mellotron plugin that I use a lot. TuneTrack has a good one too. Yeah. But I'll open any of those and I'll kind of just start experimenting. Um, you know, if it's like a more bare bones riff, uh, I'll try to come up with stuff that will, you know, make it more interesting, I guess. Uh, you know, add another layer on top of it. Like if it's just like a real... Uh, brutish, you know, riff, I'll maybe try to add something on top of it that's more, you know, pretty sounding or or spacious sounding to kind of like create like that that contrast. Um, so usually, as far as like a systematic thing, I don't know if you would call it a system or not, but like, I'll usually pull up like a like a washy kind of atmospheric guitar tone with like delay and reverb, you know, um, that kind of like post rock sound. And I'll just start like messing around with, uh, you know, what kind of more patty sounding stuff would go good under a riff. There's a lot of that in our sound, a lot of washy kind of ambient guitars that even if you can't hear them out front, they kind of, you can feel them um, and they can, those kind of like pad sort of things can really like change the mood of a riff. Like you can you could put like a more atmospheric thing over top of it. That's like super archaic sounding, like evil sounding, you know, if you're doing like, you know, uh, like tritone or like a half step kind of thing. Right. Or, you know, if you want like a more, uh, I don't know, like, uh, uplifting, uh, and like progressive kind of sound, you could like do stuff with, um, like, you know, pentatonic tones over top of it to kind of create that you know, just like the like the the black keys on a on a keyboard kind of sound, like I guess like over top of like more brutish sounding riffs. Uh, but anyway, I'm I'm just getting too talky here. Yeah, I don't know. I just I drop the riffs in, and I will either use a guitar or a synthesizer or a plugin to kind of stack stuff on top of it. And a lot of times, what ends up happening is through stacking, because as I said before, I tend to get carried away with putting too much on certain parts of songs. While I'm doing this, I'll get ideas through those stacks that I'm building on top of things, and those will become other parts of the song. Um, you know, so I find that usually when I write, I usually just need one one riff, and and I can kind of like start. You know, the the rest of the song really snowballs from there. I've found. Um, so really, I guess, like I said before, the studio is kind of second instrument to me, I guess. Because um, I think back to the times where I would like just sit there with a guitar and I had like a little like boss micro BR like recorder thing, mm-hmm. you know, and like just how like uninspiring it is to just sit there and just like play your guitar and then listen to your guitar back and be like, is that cool? And then like, that's it, you know? Um, so I think, I think like keeping myself inspired while I'm writing the song is like the most important thing and making like my demos sound as good as they possibly can, um, as inspiring as they can. Um, you know, I think that's what really like pushes, like it sounds like an easy answer, but like keeping myself inspired 
like basically excited for like what comes next the entire time that I'm writing is like how I write songs. And if like I find myself sitting there and just like sliding stuff around uh, a ton or, you know, closing this VST and opening another one and all that one sounds, I don't like that. If I do that too much, you know, I, I have a point at which I know that it's just like cooked for the day. And then I just usually walk away. Um, you know, like I, I think writing for me, I have to be, I have to be like in a decent mood, good mood. Um, and I have to be inspired, I guess. Um, like in, at no point during like my writing process, am I like, um, is it like a, like a myth? I mean, it is, I guess I have methods, but like, it's not really like a methodical thing for me. It has to be like kind of a fun and inspiring thing for me. So I guess keeping that, the ball of create, uh, the ball of inspiration rolling while I'm, while I'm writing is like the most important thing for me. And, and I do that through, you know, bringing in things outside of my primary instrument, you know, of guitar, just, I, I just try different sounds and, and see what sounds good, I guess. And, and that will kind of inspire me to, keep the ball rolling. And, and a lot of times the, the stacking that I do with different layers will, will spawn different new parts to songs or other songs entirely. That's happened before where like, I'll write a riff for one song. Then I'll like come up with some melodic passage with a synthesizer or VST or whatever over top of it that I don't end up using that actually ends up becoming, um, you know, something for another song. Like we have a song, the void from which no sound escapes which was, I think, the third single we released. And the beginning of that song was actually, it starts with this like piano synthesizer kind of thing, just a real simple melody. Um, I think that was actually something that I had written for over top of another song that's actually on the record, but didn't end up using. Um, so I just ended up changing keys with it and using it in another song. Um, so yeah, I think really like just being good at, knowing my equipment, knowing how to use it, um, and just like making everything happen in as uh, effortless and as seamless of a way as possible is kind of like how I how I keep it going. Because um, I found that the best, I mean, this seems like a dumb thing to say, but like, you know, the better that I've gotten at, you know, using the equipment that I do have, the easier it's gotten to uh, be creative for me, I guess, you know. Um, so being literate and, and knowing what stuff does and, and, you know, knowing what I need to do to get to an end result is like kind of like the, the second side of the coin with me in writing, you know, the, the whole studio setup, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anytime you break down barriers to being creative, like make it more convenient, like there's a certain amount of struggle that makes it a bit more meaningful. But at the same time, if you all you've got is that boss micro recorder you're talking about. There's a limitation that's almost impossible to get over. So today's episode of the How Songs Are Made podcast is sponsored by the amazing DistroKid, the best way to get your music on the internet and their new tool, which is called Artists for Change. The Artists for Change tool allows artists to easily donate a portion of their earnings to a charitable organization or cause. Utilizing DistroKid's split feature, all an artist has to do is choose a charity and designate how much of a percentage from each single the artist wants to donate. It's easy. The organizations you can choose to donate to include Miracle Messengers, North Brooklyn Angels, Slice Out Hunger, Vouchers for Veggies, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, 
the Ground Up Music Foundation, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the National Independent Venue Association, and more. So head over to your DistroKid dashboard to get that set up today. Something you said made me think of another question that I had. So the album opens with the the theme from the work, and it comes back throughout the album. Can you Do you know about how many times that theme comes back throughout the album and how did you decide where it would go or how did that factor in? Yeah, that song, it's called The Tower and then in parentheses, the theme from the work. Um, that that piece was something that I wrote kind of later, I think, in the process, like later in the writing process. I probably wrote that somewhere around the beginning of 2020, I would guess. But when I, when I wrote that, I kind of wanted to try to just chat. It, it wasn't even going to be a river song initially. Uh, I had just gotten a cool uh, piano VST. Um, and I just wanted to like try to write a song using only the piano, really, um, you know, just like try to write a cool, I don't know, this is this might be mean, but like, you know, like when you hear like, sometimes you hear like piano parts in like metal songs and it's just like, oh, that's like a metal guy playing a piano, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I wanted to write something that didn't sound like that because I knew it would be very easy for, for me to do that, right? But like, I just basically wanted to write this song that like uh, was heavily piano based. Like I'm a big Nine Inch Nails fan and like Trent Reznor's, you know, fantastic piano player. I like, he's like, it's funny, it's funny to say it, but like, he's like definitely one of my favorite piano players out there. I just like love, I just like love the way, like the the tones that he chooses to use. I think they sound awesome. Um, but like, so it was like definitely a kind of like a piece that's probably inspired by that, by that influence. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it comes up on that song. It comes up on, there's uh, a song on the record called Tower 2. So obviously it's just second one. Electric Boogaloo. Yes. Yeah. It's Tower 2 Electric Boogaloo. It comes back there. It comes back a few few more times on the record, but those are like the two, those are the two main ones. I think there's like three or four parts on, on the album where it comes back, but it really just is meant to kind of be this sort of through line that connects the record together. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, like, as far as, like, calling it the theme from the work or anything like that, like, how it ties in with the greater concept of everything, but it was just, like, a cool-sounding melody, I guess, that um, when I wrote it, Biggs was like, you should, we should use that more. Like, that has, like, a, you know, that has, like, an album sound to it. Um, like, you know, sometimes you just hear something uh, and, like, you know what album it's from, you know? Like, you hear, like, a part of a song and you're just like, oh, that's this band this album for sure right like it just kind of he was like it has that sound we should try to get more out of it so the beginning uh the album starts with that and then it comes back uh with tower two and it's kind of like a more stripped down version um of of that melody um but still the same thing um i think it comes back in the song terrestria four there's a couple of different like uh rhythmic and like melodic like uh themes that recur on the album so um but as far as like the tower like it's uh it does pop up on the record a few times and it's just kind of supposed to be yeah like this thing that connects the the whole album together we're like all big fans of you know kind of like the whole album experience right instead of just singles like we we wanted to kind of create something that had this kind of mood to it and that that piano piece um 
it did it it had the right mood for what we were looking for so um yeah so it comes back a lot uh, uh, several times on the record but that's definitely something that that's like the opening song on the album is probably one of my favorite songs on the record just because it is something that i put together you know um on the piano um and it's like very outside it, it, when we initially wrote it it was like it almost sounded kind of like a muse song um with no guitars on it there was like it was just like piano and strings and some synthesizers i think it had this almost like like it could have been on like black holes and revelations or something it had like that kind of sound to it but then we brought in like you know put some heavy guitars on it and some other you know stuff that people are you know used to hearing with us over top of it and kind of it just worked for the record but that's a song that I'm proud of, and and uh, it's still probably one of my favorite ones on the album. I would say. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff. I eventually, hopefully, early next year, I'll be putting out an album, and we did that same thing. We've got this theme that I wrote. That in the beginning, it's like all uh, like an orchestrated big version of it with all like VSTs, mostly Spitfire, <laughs> and then yeah, like, yeah couple different songs the melody comes back and then the ending is the same is like this kind of bigger version of it and i you know i do that because i listened to too much dream theater um <laughs> like the the whole um uh, scenes from a memory album and and all that they're really good at tying in those themes like that and um and it and it makes it feel like a complete thought you know instead of just a collection of songs it's kind of like the band turning and winking at the camera, like we're, you're still there, yeah. We're uh, you remember from before, you know. Makes it feel almost like a like a movie or something. Like you know, um, there's characters that come back instead of just random whatever. Yeah, it's like um, like you know, like Pink Floyd. Like when you hear uh, another brick in the wall, you could hear just that that delayed guitar, right? The like, dun, 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 dun. you know, you're listening to the wall, or like if you hear that like. E minor to A major, you know, you know, you're listening to that, that, you know, breathe the Pink Floyd mm -hmm. song, breathe. Like yeah. you hear that, you know, that comes back on that record. Like just, you know, what album you're listening to, like, you know what it is, you know, it just has, you just know, you know, like I love albums like that where, you know, they have this just thing about them where you just, you could, you could listen to any song, you know, on the record or like, or hear, you know, any piece of something and just like, no, oh, okay. Like this is, that's from that record, right? I, I love it when bands do that. It's like one of my favorite things. Yeah. It generates a lot of audience buy-in, I think, because they feel like they know something that the casual listener wouldn't, who only heard a single. You know, you listen through the whole album maybe a couple of times, and they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, you didn't notice this? Oh, you maybe only, you must have just heard the single. Fucking casuals. Yeah, you're just casual. Yeah, like, I, I know... Um, we'll we'll sometimes do that with riffs like across albums like we've brought riffs back from other records and like biggs will pick up on that and he'll uh he'll bring back lyrics from other records so like we've kind of on our first four albums there have been several instances of us bringing back you know riffs but like maybe with a different feel or like you know in a different key um, but like very obviously still that riff or like the same, you know, lyrics, like we have a song called, uh, rain eater. It was the first single that we released on our very first album with metal blade. And the chorus to it says, uh, bury me so I might grow. And on this newest record on the song terrestria four, uh, bury me so I might grow comes back. So like we try to do stuff like that a lot as a band, just kind of like, 
you know, just connecting everything together, really, because I don't know why not. Because <laughs> why not? Yeah, you can do it. Why not? I can think of no reason why not. So you don't write any of the lyrics, but I imagine that since the album has come out and everything and you've heard all of them a lot and probably talked to the guys about it. Can I ask you a little bit about the lyrics? Yeah. I'll probably totally like blow it. Um, <laughs> like sp anything specific. I kind of like have, um, you know, like my interpretation of the, of the album. Um, but I, I mean, I would Biggs Biggs is like, he's definitely like the, he's definitely like the concept lyrics guy. I'm just like the, the minstrel guy, you know? Um, <laughs> Every band's got to have both. Yeah, for sure. The minstrel, the concept guy. Yeah, I'm like the minstrel slash jester, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so it seems to me like it's just like kind of an album about, and this is going to sound, you know, kind of blanket statement, but it, it is kind of, to me, I kind of interpret it as like, like an album just sort of like about uh, the human experience. And like there's certain things about um, the album, like parallels I can draw between, you know, what what we do as a band, right? Like, I mean, the album is called The Work. I guess you could like look at it in any number of ways. Like you could look at it as like, hey, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly uh, our biggest offering of work to the world. I mean, the album is almost a, an hour and 10 minutes long, you know? I mean, it's it's a long record. So in that sense, it's certainly a, a piece of work. There's a lot on the album that I kind of interpret as being, you know, reflection of, what we do as a band and like the struggles that we've been through as a band up until this point, the work that we do as a band and like how that's changed all of us personally, you know, professionally, musically, whatever. A lot of the album to me kind of says, you know, like it's, it's an album about like us growing up as people, you know, I think a lot of our previous albums had more fantasy based lyrics, uh, I guess. And this album is much more uh, of kind, not literal, but like just kind of like almost like real world concepts that like I think anyone could understand. Like the first single we released, Clean, you know, that that song opens up with, I, I want your money, your time, I want your patience and your pride, um, you know. And I think when that song first came out, a lot of people were like roasting it a little bit because it opens with, I want your money, right? But like, you know, thinking that like we were like literally asking people like, come on, pay up, which like, I mean, really, that's what we you, were doing. But Why would anyone think that? Why? Why? How is that the first, like any other lyric in the history of time? You, Why would you take it li literally, you know, this one especially? Oh, oh, they're just in it for the money. Yeah, that's why we're playing death metal. <laughs> yeah, we're playing death metal for the money. Uh, but, you know, like that, like that lyric, uh, like that song's like it's about like being being a being broke and just like being down on your luck and and just like scraping every day to like hold it together and like have enough you know money and energy and and patience and whatever just to get to the next page of the story right like that's what that song's about to you know to me and like biggs has confirmed that i'm i'm on the right path with understanding he doesn't really you know i don't really like ask him specifics about about the stuff that he writes because i know that it is personal for him um but i've picked up things here and there yeah. and uh but yeah I, I think it's an album that's uh it's just really like about i know a lot of it's personal to him but like i think it's just really a, an album about like you know um us as a band 
you know, growing up and like um, expectations maybe that are put on us as a band or as artists or whatever, struggling with who even are we, you know, like, are we ever going to get to play this? You know, are we ever going to get to do our jobs again? You know, like, what is, where's all this going? Like, it's definitely... I think in hindsight, maybe it's still too early now, but I, I think that like years down the road, we might look at back at this record and like, it'll make total sense that it was like written during like the time during which it was written, you know, during a time of like such great uncertainty and like everything within, you know, our industry and, and, and the rest of the world. But like, yeah, the, the album to me, it's just like, a, it's really like kind of like a collection of of like thoughts on the human experience i guess i mean that's such a silly way to put it i you know but like i think there's just so much on the record that um could kind of fall under that category of of like um it's just commentary on like you know life i guess you know and 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 the hardships the triumphs and you know trials and tribulations of life really and and what getting older means and and you know how that changes you as a as a person and a, and an artist and, and all that stuff, you know? So I, I hope I didn't like blow that too hard if he's, <laughs> no, if he's watching, if he's watching this, but <laughs> it, you know, like, I, I don't know, like I heard the, I heard, you know, I, I think I listened to the album for the first time, like in its entirety while I was on a run once. And like, I didn't really know, you know, exactly what it was about, but I just, I knew it was serious and I knew it was intense. So yeah, I, I I haven't really like asked him specifically, but it, it it's it's definitely a it's a different record for us, you know. Like I said, like a lot of our stuff before was like a lot of fantasy based stuff, you know. Still lyrics that I loved, but this record is is like one where I think any of the lyrics on the album, like anyone could read them and probably like find something that they could relate to in them because most of the stuff is just about you know stuff that happens in life, I guess. Yeah, I always find that I'm more drawn to very personal lyrics rather than fantasy ones even when the fantasy part of it is like very cool like I, I you know I grew up listening to a lot of power metal I love power metal and that is the ultimate in escapist fantasy for the most part but my very favorite was always Sonata Arctica they have the most personal lyrics i always thought of them as being like an emo band that played power metal like the his lyrics are so super personal even when they're about like a um not a vampire what's the other one um a dragon rope um a werewolf <laughs> dragon i think there's a tendency in metal to have this sort of escapist fantasy thing and not to go super super personal but and every time metal bands really go there i think it's um it's it's so much more powerful and i always like it i like i like seeing that transition you know to that like hey we're like we got some shit to say about ourselves now (laughs) you know i like that yeah i mean i was really stoked like when you know i read the lyrics and 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 heard the final product because you know it 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 was I knew it was going to be a different kind of album from the beginning because I, I actually, the one song that I know I had lyrics for was the first song on the album, The Tower. And when I saw the lyrics for that song, I was just like, oh, okay. Like, it's like, this is this is going to be different, you know, it's it because the album opens with like, you're out there waiting for the train to, for the train to come or maybe the rain to stop. And I was just like, ooh, I was like, this is going to be a probably gonna be a sad a sad boy i think uh you know not 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 a not a uh a, a fantasy uh dragons and swords yeah. kind of boy it's my uh so i knew it was going to be a different 
a, a different kind of album. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's a more personal one this time. I don't know. I guess I'm stoked for that because I think that, like I said, years down the road, I think we're going to be able to like look at this album uh, thematically and be able to be like, yeah, like that's exactly where we were, you know, as, as a band. And I'm sure that Biggs will be able to look at it in an even more personal way and say like, yeah, that's exactly where I was as a, as in an in- individual, you know? Um, so yeah, hopefully the vocal discussion was interesting because <laughs> like I said, I'm just a, a petty minstrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to take a slightly different tack and ask you about how you got to the point where you're at now where you can do this at this at this level. Did you ever either study um, songwriting and composition in any formal sense or even just spend a lot of time picking apart songs that you liked to learn how to do it? Did you ever in any way consciously study the art of songwriting and or the related things like music theory, ear training, like harmony, that kind of thing. As far as like songwriting goes, uh, no, I like, I never had any formal training on that. I think most of my training on that was growing up with a dad who, you know, played the classics around the house growing up. I mean, my, I grew up in a house where the Beatles and Moody Blues and Pink Floyd and King Crimson, you know, like I knew who all those bands were when I was like eight years old, you know? Um, I just grew up in in an environment that was like highly musical. My dad played acoustic guitar a little bit, but like he really like educated me on just different bands and like really kind of gave me a solid foundation for, for music, you know, when I was younger, like, and he had like all kinds of, you know, VHS tapes laying around of like, you know, behind the music of this band or that band from the 60s and 70s. And like, I think even though it's not necessarily you know, related to like songwriting, I think that like growing up and kind of learning to appreciate like the, the band dynamic and like being fascinated with like the like intricacies of like how a band functions, you know, like creatively especially was always really interesting to me. That was the stuff that I, that I found um, really cool. And I think that growing up, I also learned how to like, I think like, learned how to pick up sounds a lot better um, through listening to those albums. Like I, I would be able to, I would try to like just hear, you know, just hear the bass or just hear the the keys or just hear this or that. Like I would try to pick apart different sections of, of songs that, you know, I was hearing and like try to identify like what those things were. So I think that like just growing up with, you know, in a kind of like, I guess classic rock kind of environment, prog rock was like big for my, for my songwriting you know, uh, sensibilities and they still are. I mean, I still like a lot of what I listen to to this day is like, you know, could, would probably be considered like, you know, classic rock or whatever. Um, I like, I still like a lot of those bands. Um, but I think like from a young age, you know, um, hearing some of the greatest to have ever done it, you know, um, just kind of like, I don't know, I guess like planting the seeds for, you know, when I would eventually start writing music on my own. Um, you know, I took, uh, I took guitar lessons, um, on and off from the time I was 12. Um, I, I guess that's when I would have started and went through a few guitar teachers, learned, you know, some theory really like, I think like ear training is still something that like, I think is like one of my strongest like points as like a musician and writer. Like I, I can hear something and like 
you know, I could figure it out like immediately and, you know, like know what to listen for and stuff. So, you know, I would, I would say that like above lessons and, and all that stuff, I think just like the best training that I could have had for songwriting on my own was, it was just listening to music and listening to as much music as possible, as much different music as possible, as much different genres outside of like, you know, what it is that I'm playing, you know, necessarily. I, I think having like a, a big palette of sounds to pull from when you're, when you're, you know, putting stuff together is important. Cause like, even though, oh, well, like this isn't how, you know, death metal band X would write a song. You know, if all you listen to is death metal, that's going to be all you have to like reach for when you're like stuck in a corner and don't know how to get out of it creatively. Right. But like, if you listen to Elton John one day and, uh, you know, Meshuggah the next day and, uh, you know, George Harrison the next day and, uh, Nine Inch Nails the next, like, I, I think having, like, lots of different kind of, like, sound worlds to pull from are, like, a big part of, like, my style as, like, a songwriter. The other best practice, really, for me, is just learning how to record myself. I think that sitting here and being able to physically see chunks of a song, you know, like, what it looks like when a song's laid out in a DAW and experiment with like moving stuff around and like, well, how does this work? Like, oh, well, like if I'm transitioning here, like this sounds kind of awkward. Maybe it needs, maybe the drum fill, you know, needs to, you know, go to like different beat value or whatever. Like, you know, like just basically being able to see stuff like on my screen and slide it around and, and see how that all works, um, you know, has been probably like one of the other most important things for me with songwriting, just like getting good enough at, at recording myself that I, you know, like I said before, know what steps I need to take to get to a certain point. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. I find it really helpful working in a DAW because you can get a different perspective on the song just by zooming in and out. Yeah. You can zoom in and sort of like do a bunch of detail work on like programming a little drum fill exactly a certain way or like making sure that things are tightly performed or whatever. But then you can just, you know, zoom out and see the track as a whole, see each part and go like, oh man, like this part happens too many times or yeah. like, oh wow, like I didn't realize that this song is now 16 minutes long and like that might be a bit much or or whatever or like, oh my gosh, like the, the main idea of this song doesn't happen only but two times or whatever and yeah. Yeah, it's exactly what I'm talking about is like being able to, yeah, because like there's a difference between when you just listen to a song, you know, versus you know when you see it you know on your screen like the waveforms and everything like that because like yeah like you said like you might notice like oh damn like i wrote this part thinking that this was going to be like this part that carried the whole song and it only happens once at the beginning like maybe i need to bring it back and maybe i need to bring this part you know delete this and then slide this over so that it lines up with the part that i want to have happen again like it's it's stuff like that that you would never be able to do if you didn't you know, have at least like a, a decent amount of, you know, language within a DAW, right? I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I, you know, learning to record myself was like the best thing that I ever could have done for myself as a musician. I'm super glad I did, you know, back in like 2012, I think 2011, maybe even at this point, like that's when I got my first cracked copy of Cubase. And like, <laughs> I told myself I was going to learn it. And I'm really glad I did because you know, recording myself has saved my band thousands of dollars, you know, in studio costs and kind of just given me 
the ultimate freedom to sit here for as many hours a day as I want to and make sure that stuff is exactly the way I want it to be instead of paying somebody else to, you know, sit there awkwardly while I figure out what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it really emphasizes the importance of pre-pro. The fact that you could go in, hand Carson your all pre-set up sessions like or with all the at least with the you know with the tempo maps and all that stuff and you guys can just start recording and not have to not be there and be like all right so this song's like uh, like 110 i guess but like and then in the yeah. middle it go and like uh okay like that's days i mean all due respect to eric rutan he's a legend i love the guy to death but we recorded our first album with eric which was very much like that we showed up with nothing we had practiced you know for you know weeks ahead of time but like we just showed up and it was very much like that like oh yeah i think it's like 120 it might be like 125 like and it was yeah it was just like great experience i would never not do that that first record because it was like it was the best learning experience that we could have ever had but like it was very much like that and like I think it was after that that I realized, like, I was like, I have to learn how to do this myself so that, like, we can be be more prepared to go into the studio next time. Yeah. So, like I said, last week we had Matt on and him talking about the way that they do it all all together as a band in a room. And they, like, they, they also get the pre-pro way down like that, but they won't, like, demo it out and then, like, go back and sit there and, like, go through in the DAW and chop it up and everything and change it, like... It's how they rehearsed it as a band all live together. And then they go in to the studio and it's it's ready to go. That scares the ever-loving shit out of me because like I need to take a lot of time to sit there and like really like make sure that the song's uh, not too long, make sure everything's dialed in, all the harmonies are are there already before they hit. But they still managed to I think he said they tracked the whole thing in two weeks. Yeah. That's bonkers. Like I don't know how long it, it usually it takes you guys, but if you've got it all I mean, your guitars are already tracked, so you're really just tracking like you said, drums, bass, saxophone, vocals, and all, all of your um, VSTs and everything are also, I presume. They're already there, yeah. So yeah, like uh, I guess the question is, how long did it take you to track the album, give or take? I think it was it was around two and a half weeks. Like that was including like a couple of days where we mixed. And then I think we mixed a couple of days after. But yeah, I think we got there like the 2nd of November and I think we were done by like the 19th. Wow. So maybe it was like a little more than, than than two weeks. But we recorded our first record down at Mana Studios with, with Eric Rutan in two weeks. But we had to do everything. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, yeah, I mean, dude, and it works for some bands. I mean, like some bands, like different things work for different people. And like, I just know for a fact that like, we could never, we could never do it. Like, like, like how you said Trivium does it. Like they, you know, I, I know me personally, like I would just, I would, yeah, exactly. Like what you said, like I would have to go and make sure, you know, well, oh, well, there could have been like a, an, an ambient guitar over this part or like, oh, like I could have like reinforced this with like some Spitfire library or like, you know what I mean? Like, but like, I guess that's all stuff that, that when you're working with a producer, like that's stuff that they're kind of in charge of. So like, I think at some point in the future, it would be cool to like have somebody truly produce the band from the beginning but you know up until this point it just hasn't really made sense financially or you know or otherwise so uh but some sometime in the future i think it would be cool to you know demo everything out know what i'm gonna play but like not record it ahead of time and have someone 
you know, produce me as a guitar player and like make suggestions as the album, you know, is being built. Cause we haven't done that since the first record, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, at this point we have our system down, I guess. Um, but I think it would be cool to try it like that one day just to see what happens. I mean, we sort of did it a little on this record with Biggs's bass, you know, like I said, he, Carson produced his bass. Whereas on the last two records, I, you know, just did it here. So I think it might be cool down the line to do it that way. But um, yeah, I, I would still even then have to go through, you know, the way I do now and just spend months and months like <laughs> making sure that everything has, you know, as much as it needs and, and nothing more, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you've developed a certain way of working. Yeah. And it's obviously working very well because people love what you do. The album's... Are, turning out great better and better every time you know um there's a there's an evolution to your band you know i'm um i kind of first heard you on monarchy and um and having heard the older ones and and seeing what i consider to be sort of the ideal evolution of a band in the sense that you let's see what what did i write this down like yeah it, you you've got this sound that still includes all of the elements for what you were kind of were known for for your older stuff but this new sound this sort of more codified like it's new but it's it makes sense given where you were and maybe where you think you're going or what you're trying for you know i can hear all the different all those different elements that you you were discussing like that you're talking about these the bands that you grew up listening to plus this extreme blasting death metal you know which there's some of but it feels like you've fuse them together into this mutant thing that's awesome to me and you know you could wind up with the wrong producer and they could kind of ruin that you know you could make make something that just uh doesn't make sense for in that evolution or you could find somebody who go who like looks at the whole picture and goes like oh here's the thing that this needs to be and all of a sudden there it is boom and yeah i you know i think that's why Carson and I work together so well. We both listen to a lot of the same music. And like, so like, I'll be able to like make, you know, like if I, cause like we still pick a lot of, a lot of the tones out in the studio and a lot of the effects are done in the studio. So I'll be able to just like rattle off some like reference from, you know, some like weird, like early nine inch nails thing that they did soundtrack for a video game for. And he knows exactly what effect I'm talking about. So like, I think, you know, even though he's not necessarily like producing us as we go, like I think having that, like that language and like, he's, I mean, he's like the chillest guy ever, you know? And uh, I, I think having just the comfort, you know, cause we recorded our first EP with him back in 2009. Um, and then again, in 2011, they recorded the demos that actually ended us getting assigned to Metal Blade. And then we've done three records with them since then. You know, we like, we can be our 100% selves around those guys and like it's totally fine. So I think, you know, yeah, just the, the, the comfort level around those dudes is real good. And I think that that's, you know, an underrated part of the dynamic because, you know, if you're, you know, if you don't really get someone's humor or like you feel like, you know, looking at the clock all the time, you know, like or whatever, you know, like those are all things that can make an album more difficult to make. And I think that those guys very much get us and our humor and our personalities and, you know, our individual needs, you know, I guess, you know, as much as we understand them. So I think that's a 
to what you said, you know, about having the right producer and everything like that, you know, like I think that's something to be considered as well is just like having like a universal language, you know, with the people that you work with and just understanding each other kind of like on a subconscious level, I guess. Yeah, that to me sounds like the best way to get the best results because you might have, I don't know, some legendary producer, somebody who's, I don't know, expensive and works a certain way and you just don't get along at all and the final product is not going to be any good. I've seen that kind of thing happen before, you know, they hire somebody and it's maybe the labels like, "Oh, you should work with so and so. They worked with this other band and produced a hit or whatever and it just doesn't happen." But if you've got a great working relationship with somebody um and you're comfortable, that will inevitably produce a greater product, I think. Uh dude, I absolutely agree. I mean, I've had, you know, after we released Owls I had a couple of producers, you know, reach out to me who like, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of like a fan of their work, you know, like I love, you know, the albums that they've, they've done, you know, some, one of the producers, you know, that was interested in working with us has done some of my favorite records ever. And like, we, we still ended up going with, with Carson and Grant just cause like we have that, like, you know, that dynamic, which like, I think is way more important than like, you know, oh, well, this guy's done this sick album, you know, I don't know. I just like, I guess that's the common thread that runs through everything, you know, with what I do is like, I need to be, you know, comfortable and in a, you know, in a good mood, I guess, like when I'm writing, you know, I have to be, I have to be, you know, comfortable. I can't feel shitty or like, you know, nervous or anxious. Like, you know, um, I think that, you know, the comfort thing is like super important, you know, like I don't, uh, I know a lot of bands, you know, say like, oh, we work well under pressure and stuff like that. And like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I do. I think that I do best when when I'm pretty relaxed and everything's real, like low key, I guess. You know, I think that's when, when I feel like I'm functioning at, at full potential. Great. It's very important to know, to know that kind of thing because, yeah, you can wind up with some, <laughs> oh, you're like, I work really well under pressure and then you don't and then you know it's time to go and uh yeah i mean you know there's a difference between not you know there's a difference between like being lazy and like not working well under pressure you know what i mean like it's it's not it's not the same thing like i mean i i still like i i have like mental kind of like schedules that i i keep myself under deadlines on certain things like you know when we're when i'm re-recording stuff for the final you know the final studio session, you know, like I'll budget time, like, you know, I'm starting on this day with the guitar tracks, I need to have this done by this, 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 like, that's the kind of pressure that's like productive for me, you know. Um, but like, having, you know, you know, egos or, or, or whatever, you know, like that, just like, arguing, like none of that stuff, you know, none of that stuff, like, uh, produces a greater result for, for me or any of the guys in my band, you know, I'm sure, you know, some bands make great records getting screamed at the entire time, but not our band. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything that you did on this that you've never done before on this album? Oh, yeah, lots of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, we, um, the one thing, which is like one of my favorite parts of the record and is uh, like, I don't know. It's like, I guess it's a little underrated. Like I haven't seen that many people talking about it. And it's like my favorite thing about the record. I spent a couple of months uh, gathering field recordings um, from 
around the area that we live in. Like there's the sound of our hometown is like weaved into that record so hard. It's like not even funny. Like the train, the, the record starts with the train that is right over there. You could see it if you were here. Uh, you know, it's, it's like I recorded this you know, train that runs by my house and like ran it through like Valhalla crazy verb. And it sounds like, you know, some insane Hans Zimmer noise and like, but I also like, you know, went to, uh, these like abandoned, uh, like places around where we live at and like old, like, you know, uh, industrial parks from like the forties that have since closed down. And I grabbed just like sound, like, are you familiar with the, the plug-in damage? Yeah. Uh, like the, the, it's like the sounds of like metal being hit and like cars exploding and stuff. We basically, I basically made my own damage library, you know, through going to these warehouses and like recording the sounds of doors slamming and, you know, uh, counterweights dropping in these massive halls that were just made of concrete and they just would echo for 40 seconds, you know, cause there's nothing in these big empty halls. And like, so anyway, I got like, gigs and gigs of 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 uh wave files of this stuff you know from just going out you know for a day and and here or there and grabbing them and uh then what i would do is i would bring them back cut them up into like drum loops basically and like at certain parts of the record i would like reinforce like actual drum parts with these like you know crazy like you know sounds and then other times like i would even use those sounds to like carry the entire like rhythm of the song i would like design like a whole rhythmic loop using different sounds that i grabbed from you know whether it was warehouses or some of them are from when we were on tour like i know there's one song that has like the sound of an ice machine from sweden in it just all this like you know different stuff and i tried to like you know some of the stuff exists on its own just unedited like field recordings like I would just take literally what I recorded and put it over a certain section just to create like a vibe and then other parts like I said are like cut up and like basically like played as an instrument on the record um like the song Focus which was the second single we released that whole song is kind of driven by this like one continuous percussion loop you know it's like really like kind of tribal sounding you know and it just goes for most most of that song and that whole loop was constructed using just these sounds that i got from these these warehouses around where i live at i don't know that's that's something we did on this record that we've never done before was field recordings and you know not just field recordings in a like oh yeah let's record a a a dog and put it on the album and that's it you know just to be weird like it was like it was like actually like I tried to like make it musical, you know. The the field recordings though, that was like the the one thing we did on this record that was like definitely different. It's definitely my favorite part uh, of the record, just because it's it's so different from what we've we've done before. Um, and I'm just like a fan of like weird stuff like that working its way into albums. So um, the field recordings were definitely new for us, as well as the use of analog synthesizers, because I know you know, how easy it is to just pull up a synth, you know, a soft synth or whatever. And like, I don't actually know if the analog ones sound any better than, you know, the good VSTs, but like having like knobs to turn and stuff to hit with your hands, like it's something that there's something about that. So like analog synthesizers are another thing on this record that we brought in that um, we had never done before. So those two things are like two of my favorite things about this record, because I feel like it just like yeah, it just like really like brought a, a different dimension to the album. Yeah, I did notice that. And I did hear a couple 
people talking about that a, a little bit in reference to the album and some reviews and some uh, just chit chat around like my discord and and all of that and uh and, and yeah you can hear i mean I, I wrote down something here about like sounds of birds and uh oh and, yeah and some other stuff at like, the end of the album yes yeah the, see that that would be the birds would be a good example of like like tying like we were talking about like themes that come back like so like our first record was a springtime record and at the end of the winter record you have the birds you know what i mean so it's like all yeah yeah so yeah stuff like that though that's like my that that extra stuff was like my my favorite stuff about this record for sure yeah really going really going the extra mile to create the atmosphere the soundscape that's a thing that a lot of a lot of metal bands don't do that well for a number of reasons but sometimes there's just not room sonic room for that this album has a lot more room uh i noticed that you know a lot less full out blast beat um craziness you know a lot of a lot of space for you to put that kind of stuff in and the hugeness of the band that was always there okay you always had these big ambient soundscapes um a lot of with a lot of your like lead guitar parts and synths and stuff, but it was always accompanied by a wall of death metal, which I love, no no question, but it sounds like you were able to put a little bit more emphasis on the on the other stuff along with that because you left this room in there. Yeah, and I think that was intentional because I you know, early in the process we had discussed like I had just I had just kind of thought about who like some of my favorite metal bands were live metal bands were and like what they all had in common and i realized that it was just like a slightly slightly lower tempo than what you know i had been used to writing in you know like writing within a, a tempo range where the bass frequencies have the the opportunity to like blossom in a room you know what i mean like like or bloom in a room is that the saying bloom yes the bass bloom uh but like if you're just like stacking you know 16th notes together at 260 beats per minute like there's no chance for like that sound to like react to the room and just have that like impact and and stuff that um i find that is my favorite thing about like some of my favorite live you know metal bands whether it's you know gojira or mashuga or mastodon um you know uh you look at those bands and like even gojira at their absolute fastest they're doing like two two ten two twenty right like 210, 220 beats per minute. Like maybe there's a few exceptions. Um, but like I had like, that was an intentional thing this time because I really wanted to like, yeah, like just create space and like leave space for other things and like give give frequencies a chance to kind of like react, you know, and, and kind of, uh, yeah, just like, I don't know, instead of creating like a super claustrophobic sort of feel just like having that like like you're in a you're like in a big room or a cave or something you know so yeah that was definitely intentional you know from the start i knew that i want i wanted to write songs that were not slow but like just like more like driving i they had like more of like this driving energy to them instead of like insanity the entire time and th that's not to say there aren't those crazy moments on the record because there definitely are but like you know the first single clean i mean i think that song is like 100 beats per minute depending on or you know depending on how you you want to like look at it it's like either 100 or 200 but like it's you know that's pretty slow for a death metal song uh but like it has you know this massive wall of sound this huge impact and like you know something that like 
is would be impossible for me to achieve if I was, you know, writing at 270 beats per minute or whatever. I just wanted to, you know, try try something different out and and uh, you know, write stuff that was maybe a little more geared towards sounding, you know, huge live, right? Um, cuz like I feel like and, and that also has that has a lot to do with like, you know, touring a lot on owls, I think, and like noticing like what parts of our set I really felt like you know, like the crowd was like reacting to, you know, really positively. And like when I felt like we were like really firing on all cylinders and I noticed that it was like the vast majority of those moments were like, are more like, you know, not slower stuff, but just like stuff that was like, just less like just jammed right up against each other. Like where we gave a chance, you know, for the, for the, the music to breathe. I noticed that that's the, it was those moments that were really like, connecting you know in a live setting a lot better than the stuff that was like blast straight through i guess i love both right but on this record specifically i knew we wanted to turn the tempos down a little bit just to create space for any extra kind of sounds that we might want to bring in and to you know maybe just give a different live experience i think you nailed it what you're describing is what i felt listening through the whole album as i did uh many times to prepare for this and just to just to enjoy it and i think it's an amazing album i think it's the obvious next step in the evolution of the band congratulations on making something so great and on the success of your band it's been really fun to watch and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today yeah man it's good to see you trey i hope to see you irl very soon yeah I'm also very stoked for you. I'm glad everything is going awesome for you. And uh, thanks, Doc. Yeah. yeah, man. Hope to see you soon. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully we'll uh, see you on tour or, or whatever when you're um, out here, and uh, maybe we'll uh, shoot something else together again. Hopefully very soon. Yeah, springtime. I think so. See you then. <laughs> all right, my dude. I will catch you on the flippy floppy. And everybody, go listen to the work on all the usual platforms. Sometimes I ask for a website or whatever. It just It's Google. Google.com. It's on the internet. It's on the internet. Go on there and check out my band on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the How Songs Are Made podcast. Each of these episodes is recorded during a live stream on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash geargods, every Monday at 11 a.m. PST. So if you're interested in seeing them happen live, just head over there and subscribe. Big thanks to today's sponsor, DistroKid, the best way to get your music on the internet. For 7% off your first year of DistroKid, head over to distrokid.com slash VIP slash GG.